it's good to be with you all. There's no place I'd rather be with the family of God. It's a, it's a beautiful day today. And as you can see, there is something special that's going to be going on here in a minute. But we're going to first get into his word for a few minutes. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn, find there, and get ready. We're going to be talking today, this is Faith Foundations number 10, and the title is Servant of All. We're going to be talking about one of the five graces that God has given to agape, kingdom culture. So the five graces that God has given uh, to our church, um, his glory is expansive. We talked about his glory as being infinite, um, and he's given us as people and as churches, as assemblies, um, just facets of his glory, ways to express his glory, to share his glory with one another and with the world around us. And so those five are, we've been given a word of faith. We've been given a word of faith. Thank you, Lord. We've been given a place of presence, a place of his presence. We've been given a ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've been given a love for people more than programs. And we've been given a kingdom culture. And the kingdom culture, right, is there's many aspects of it too, but one of the, one of, at the heart of the kingdom culture is the idea that the disadvantages we face in the world, the ways that the world labels us or um, profiles us or sorts us or uh, makes us less than somebody else for a variety of reasons. Those disadvantages, thank God, they get checked at the door. And when we get brought into the kingdom, they don't follow us in. That's good news. That's good news around the globe. It's good news for everyone. It also means that in the same way, when the, the, when the world anoints you with privilege or appoints you with position, that doesn't follow you into the kingdom. A kingdom culture is where we truly have all been elevated equally by the love of God. And to embrace this reality, to display this reality to the world, it really requires cross-cultural friendships, cross-cultural experiences, cross-cultural ministry. It's part of the gospel. Because if we truly have been brought into this kingdom, then the things that kept us apart and kept us sorted or separated in the world, those things have then no significance and no power on us, over us in the kingdom. And so the beauty and the creativity and the amazing way that God has expressed his glory through you and me and the yous and me's around the world are for our sharing. It's the kingdom culture. And uh, we're going to be taking a look in 1 Corinthians. Paul knew about this kingdom culture. He spent a lot of time writing about it. And the book of 1 Corinthians is the most culturally expansive audience of any New Testament letter. What do I mean by that? Well, Romans was written to the Christians in Rome. Galatia was written to the churches of Galatia. Even 2 Corinthians was written to the Corinthian churches and the believers who were in that region of Acacia. But 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses, he says it was to the believers in Corinth and to all believers everywhere who are called by the name of Jesus. 
That means it's to you and me. Its audience was to every believer on earth at the time and forever until the coming of Christ again. It's for us all. And you can make us, you, you could definitely make, um, I'm not saying that other letters are not for us today. I'm just saying the audience, who he was speaking to, the topics that the Holy Spirit inspired in this letter are oftentimes for us all and how we relate to one another. It, he spent a lot of time talking about the intersection between Christ and culture. And kind of the defining question would be, how far should we go in identifying with the cultures around us? That's not an easy question. It's not even a simple question. Are we supposed to be set apart or be all things to all people? Are we supposed to be in the world but not of the world? Or should we flee from being conformed by this world at all? Should we go and dine with sinners or be the city on a hill high above the mess? Are we supposed to be a peculiar people or a relevant people? What's the problem with my list? It's too long. Who is that? Come on, man. No, the thing that's wrong with that list is I used or instead of and. We are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world, and we are to be set apart. We are supposed to be all things to all people. Oh, sorry, I got lost. Are we, we are supposed to be set apart and we are supposed to be all things to all people. We are supposed to be in the world but not of the world and we should flee from being conformed by this world at all. We should go and dine with sinners and we are to be the city on the hill high above the mess. We are supposed to be a peculiar people and a relevant people. This is the mystery of Christ in our world. These questions were just as intense then as they are now. There was nothing in the Corinthian culture that was conducive to Christianity. It was a pagan culture. There was no friends of the faith. There was no friends of churches. There was no public or, you know, like faith alliances. There was no, you know, um, there there was no ally in the culture to the Christian faith in Corinth. Um, And Paul broke it down, this question of how far should we go in identifying with the cultures around us? Um, And he addressed it in three different ways. In some ways, he addressed that we are to have total identification with the cultures around us in our freedom of mission, meaning in the people that we're called to reach, in the people that we're called to serve, in the people that the gospel came for, we have total identification and we should stop. I love Craig Groeschel of Life Church. He said, we will stop at nothing short of sin to reach people for the call of the gospel. Right? We are to have total identification. In some things, we're to have partial identification. Paul talks about, he says, what about these food offered to these pagan idols? Well, he says, well, if you have, if you have faith, if it's, not really, if it's not a bother to you, then you can just treat it as food and, and eat it. You know, don't starve because this food was somehow part of some ritual that, 
um, you didn't agree with, if you're okay with it, but if it causes somebody else to stumble and to keep them from the gospel, then don't do it, right? There's this kind of messy, partial identification of some things, sacraments and food and cultural traditions. And then there are some things we're to have no identification with, like idol worship, revelry, fear, oppressive rituals, sacrifices. So some things we're to have total identification with, some partial according to our faith and whether it will cause somebody else to stumble, and some were to have no identification with. So these first, we're going to talk about our freedom and mission today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. This is where we are to have total identification with those who are around us. For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. I became to the Jews as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. I became to the weak as one weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that a partner of it I may become with you. Let's read verse 23 all together again. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that a partner of it I may become with you. So if you had to summarize kind of the different statements. This is not just great and flowery poetry that gives us kind of a feel-good heart moment, although it is good poetry. The summary of statements, there's some, some good truth here. One, I became a servant to all people to win more. The gospel didn't just come as a nice idea. The gospel came to win. Number two, he became a Jew. I became a Jew. Number three, for Jews, I lived under the law. Number four, for Gentiles, I lived outside the law. Number five, I became weak. Number six, I became all things to all people to save some. Now, when we write in in our culture, we write top to bottom. There's an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. Who was raised on the five-paragraph essay, right? Right? That's how we think. We're trained to think that way. Paul was not trained under that system. He was not trained in a five-paragraph essay. He was trained in the ways of writing in the Middle Eastern culture where this is not just front to back. It's, and I'm sorry for the colors, it's more like a ring composition. So there's pairs of statements, one and six. I became a servant to all people to win more, and I became all things to all people to save some. That was his intentions. He's sharing with you what his intentions are for people and what he's willing to do to reach them. Two and five are statements about his identity. I became a Jew, and I became weak. Number three and four are about his lifestyle. For Jews, I lived under the law, and for Gentiles, I lived outside the law. So we're going to talk about and we're going to look at Paul's intentions, his identity, and his lifestyle 
in becoming a partner with the gospel. So his intentions. The pair of verses are, for though I am free from all people, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. You know that first phrase, for though I am free from all people? Do you know that Paul worked as a tent maker and financed himself in his ministry? That's not a model that we typically have. Um, So that no one controlled the focus or the direction of his ministry. Yet he laid down the freedom that he worked for to serve others. And finding the balance there, right, it takes maturity. Because on the one hand... There are moral hazards of letting people, other people, affirm you until they control you because we get addicted to their affirmation or lend to you until they own you. If you're in debt to somebody, if you take and take and take, eventually it's not your life you're living, it's theirs. We are encouraged to yearn for the freedom to owe nothing to anyone except what? Except to love them. And on the other hand, with every measure of freedom, I want to ask you, how do you spend your freedom? What do you do with it? Do you reward yourself with more stuff, more privileges, more comforts, more toys, more distractions? Or do you, like Paul, spend your freedom on others? Is your intention really to share your blessings, your wisdom, your privileges, your place? Is your intention really to share all that you've been given for the sake of others? That's not an easy question. It's not even an easy call. Paul spent all his freedom. He spent it all for others. He was compelled by love. He saw something in others that Jesus died died for. He saw God's precious potential that needed nurturing. He wasn't trying to get a close on a deal, a check mark to see how many people he had passed out tracks to. He was trying to honor and embrace others that are made in the image of God. And he was, not, he was willing to stop at nothing short of sin to see the gospel flourish. Are we good on intentions? It's not easy. It's not easy for me. I'm not living to that measure. I'm just holding up. This is the gospel. Our identity. So he says, I became to the Jews as a Jew that I might win Jews. And I became to the weak as one weak that I might win the weak. You know, Paul became a Jew. He sincerely presented himself as a Jew because he understood the Jewish life. He grew up in it. I would say this is a group that would have been nearly impossible to have any credibility with from the outside. Like, there was no way for somebody to have really credibility within this Jewish system if you weren't born into it, weren't 
didn't have your identity in it. And he continued to keep the culture, cultural traditions of his own people to ensure the credibility of the gospel remained intact. He came as a Jew to the Jews. This was something unique that he possessed, that God gave him these credentials, this identity, this birthing, in order to reach those within his own group, within his own system that would have been impervious to people outside it. The message to these Jewish people was an inside job. However, this was not the limit of Paul's experience. He didn't stay in that bubble. And in this kind of line of, of statements, you say, well, he became a Jew and then he lived under the law that he might win Jews. And right after that, he says, and I lived outside of the law that I might reach those who are outside of the law. And so you would expect that in identity, right, in terms of poetry, he would say, I became a Jew and then I became as a, as a what? As a Gentile. That's what you would expect to see in that place, yet it's not. He doesn't say that he becomes as a Gentile. You know, Kenneth Bailey, he's a theologian of the 20th century. He also um, was a, a seminary professor in the Middle East. He offered this commentary on this verse. He said, after spending 47 years in the Arab world and after acquiring the ability to lecture in four kinds of Arabic, I never said to my Arabic-speaking friends, we Arabs. Knowing where that uncrossable line is drawn is a critical piece of acquired awareness. As regards to lifestyle, Paul can live as one under the law, and he can live as one not under the law. But in regards to his identity, he knows that he cannot become a Gentile, and he plays no games with us. Only when we are deeply rooted in our own culture can we risk reaching out across a cultural chasm to people on the other side. A bridge must be securely anchored at each end. Only then can the bridge be completed, and only then is travel across that bridge possible. Paul will do whatever he can to cross cultural lines in the name of Christ. He will even make himself a servant. You know, when people come to visit Michelle and I at our house, we live out in the country, the first thing most people say, they step out of the car, they ask, what is that smell? Well, because we live, I mean, there's, there's, oak trees. There's hundreds of oak trees on, on the property. It's a property that's been in the family a long time. And oak trees and their leaves, when they fall, they have a very pungent aroma. You know, we don't smell it anymore. I don't even notice it. Our kids don't, they don't know what oak trees smell like, but they're in the smell of the oak tree all the time. When I go to work or when I come down to church and I go home, I still don't smell it. I don't notice the smell, but it's there. When we go on vacation, though, sometimes for a week and I come home, then I'm like, oh, that's what people notice. That's what oak trees smell like. And it's also that way with our culture. You know, when I first received Christ and received Christ here at Agape. And um, Pastor James, who has uh, discipled me, who took me under his wing, who mentored me, um, he, you know, I, I was played on the worship team with him. One of the, within a year, he said, he said, Jeff, hey, I want to take some people. I want to take you guys to, to a worship conference. I was like, yes, that sounds fun. And it's in LA. I was like, awesome. 
and it's at the West Angeles Cathedral, Church of God in Christ. And I was like, I had no idea what that even meant. I was like, sweet, let's go. So we, we, we went down. This is a week-long conference, and we stay into the hotel, check into the hotel. And this is in, there is nothing that can prepare you for the magnitude of such a church and such a community in the very heart of the city, in a place where it truly looks like a city on a hill. And I walked in for the first time, and it occurred to me in a sudden flash that I was a mini marshmallow in a vast ocean of chocolate. (laughs) One mini marshmallow. I learned so much that week about my faith, I mean, about worship, I mean, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and forget not his benefits, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. We sung with Judith McAllister over, after modulation, after modulation, and we just praised for hours, and I, like, I, it, it, my vision, my perspective was expanded a thousandfold about my own faith in ways I, I just couldn't even understand. And one of the most, I even got a Tommy burger every night after, right? And, but one of the most precious gifts about that experience happened when I got home and I got out of the car. I knew what San Luis Obispo smelled like. Paul did not claim to be a Gentile. He claimed to become weak. The word literally does not mean physically weak. It means vulnerable. He took off his armor of Roman citizenship, his Jewish rabbinical credentials, to become someone accessible and relatable to people from every walk of life and every background. Where did he get this idea? Well, the incarnation itself was an act of becoming as one week. Philippians 2.6 describes Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus also lived this way and instructed his, dis- his disciples to relate to people in this way, sent them on missions with this in mind. He said, when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two in Luke chapter nine, verse three, he instructed them to take no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, even though they had them. In short, they were to travel in need of those they sought to serve. D.T. Niles, a missionary in Sri Lanka, wrote, he said, the only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need of each other. Paul understood the best way to win those who are weak in whatever aspect, was to become vulnerable himself. We want to be strong. We want to be the strong ones. Strong people are often willing to help the weak as long as they are seen by the public as strong. This is benevolence, not servanthood. 
Benevolence is good. I'm not saying benevolence is bad, but benevolence looks down on the people you are trying to help while servanthood gets down with the people you are trying to help. Benevolence helps people, but servanthood wins people. This is the gospel. Jesus made himself this way, not this way. When Pastor Mike traveled with um, children of God to Zambia, the Zambian pastors, you know, they met with a, a collection of Zambian pastors, and Pastor Mike and Rob Cooper asked them, they said, you know, what what could we do? What would be the most important things we could do to help the Zambian people, to further the gospel? And the Zambian pastors were taken aback. They had worked with many American ministries before, but nobody had ever asked them that question. They always came with the agenda of stuff they wanted to do in advance. How do we reconcile the strength and sufficiency we have been given in Christ with the model of humility Jesus walked in, the humility Paul walked in, the humility the early early church walked in? Because we have been given sufficiency in Christ. We've been given overcoming faith and power in the name of Jesus. We've been given the authority of the name of Jesus. We've been given the power to cast out demons and lay hands on people that they will recover. We've been given the overcoming victory of the gospel and the coming kingdom of God. And yet we've been called to become vulnerable to those that need the gospel. This is how love is formed. It's not like this. It's one of the most fascinating things about Jesus and one of the most amazing and wonderful things, instructive things about following him. It is a beautiful tension, a mystery that these attributes, these truths can only be reconciled in the nature of God himself, the perfect love of God. And so he brings that to his lifestyle. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In spite of the limitations of his Jewish birth, his culture, his language, and race, Paul strains mightily to cross cultural barriers that he might by all means save some. It was not a free-for-all. He didn't take the liberty and the, the freedom he had been given in Christ because Jesus came to complete the law and thereby not only complete it, but to release us from its requirement so that we can live for freedom. He set us free that we could be free in our relationship with God and free in our relationships with one another. And he took that freedom and he became a servant of all. He willingly subjected himself to the law of Christ. Where did that come from? What what is that? Well, Galatians 2.6 
says that the law of Christ, by bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. When we get down and we allow ourselves to be in such a position that we can walk with the person underneath the burden they have, we can carry that burden with them. And the gospel together can raise us both up. It's the gospel that's the power to lift burdens, not our own strength. Paul did not forsake who he was. He just set aside the boundaries of his existence to become a student of other people and other cultures where his credentials meant nothing. He had to start from the beginning with people who would have instinctively mistrusted him because of his background, his credentials, or his lineage. Paul's lifestyle was governed by the law of Christ. And he caps this off with his intentions, his, his, his transparency about his identity, his willingness in his lifestyle that he's governed by this law of Christ. And he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that a partner of it I may become with you. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that a partner of it I may become with you. We are partners with the gospel, not purveyors. The literal mean, word means to join together, to jointly partake, to become a companion with. We are not selling Jesus. We are sharing Jesus. Amen. We're not just telling the story and giving the four spiritual laws, but we are sharing the person, the heart, the approach to life. We are becoming like him, an extension of him, his very body in the earth, filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. We allow ourselves, our rights, our reputations, what we're owed, all the things that our freedom can purchase, all of that we allow to decrease so that he may increase in us and through us. This is the language of equals, the language of mutuality, where the gospel is the glory. The gospel gets the glory because the gospel brings us together. I want to introduce you to someone, someone you may have met before, but someone that the gospel has brought us together. His name is William Juarez. William came to California from El Salvador he was the associate pastor of a 15,000-member church in El Salvador. He wanted to bring his family to the U.S. He came. He had reached out with a, a, to a ministry, a pastor friend of his that was wanted to plant a church in the Santa Maria area. He came to Santa Maria to help plant that church after a year because the church hadn't grown. The pastor shut the church down and was moving to another place, to another city, told William, I don't have place for you in this next place. And so William was left. His family's still in El Salvador. He has not enough money to get home. Not the ministry that he came to work with was gone. And he was left in this place. But that was not the end of the story. 
So I'm going to invite William and my good friend Raul up, and we're going to we're going to talk about this just for a few minutes about William's story because the gospel has brought us together. We are partners with the gospel together. And in the world, who is this kid from El Salvador living in Santa Maria, washing dishes? In the kingdom of God, I look up to him. He's risked more for the gospel than I ever have. Let's talk. Let's chat. So you're here. You came to... um, plant this church, the ministry dissolved, the pastor left. What did you do? You went into your room and cried like a baby, right? No, <laughs> that's what I would have. What did you do? Bueno, no tenía para donde ir. Y sí, lloré como un niño porque me sentía afligido, asustado, eh, Pero Dios siempre tuvo alguien, Dios siempre tuvo algo para mi vida. Y bueno, antes que nada, quizás, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. I miss my friend Ruben, but I'm so happy to be here. Because I think here is my house. So in case you guys didn't know, he was uh, actually really good friends with, with Ruben, uh, uh, Gil. Ruben Gil. And so he was in El Salvador uh, d- uh, during the time when Ruben got sick and, and eventually went home to be with Christ. So as you can tell, it's a little emotional for him because um, that was his, his connection uh, to Agape. Uh, and, and, uh... So you were here, and uh, the ministry you came to serve was kind of dissolved, and what, what was the next thing? What did you, what did you do? What was, the next, what was the next step? Bueno, en, en ese tiempo yo um, no tenía quien llamar y le llamé a quien era mi jefe, y él me dio donde vivir. So at that time, uh, after uh, he was told that uh, he was no longer going to be a part of the ministry or the ministry closed down, and uh, the person that he was... Uh, originally involved with in this ministry told him that he had no place for him. He called um, his boss at that time. He was working at a restaurant. And uh, he was, in a sense, the only person he knew and the only person he could call. Al mismo tiempo, yo estaba estudiando aquí en CCLA. At the same time he was studying here, he was learning English um, at a, some, school, some school here locally, CCLA. Which Brooks Hill... You remember Brooks Hill, a yes. longtime member of our church. So Brooks was teaching English. William enrolled in his class, and Brooks invited him to Agape. Y vine aquí, y él me habló de un Rubén que era del Salvador. Pero yo conocía a Rubén que no era del Salvador. Y ahí empezó toda la historia, porque aquí fue donde pasé quizás los momentos más difíciles al saberlo de mi esposa, bueno, quien era mi esposa, y 
Dios me trajo sanidad acá, Dios usó a gente como Margaret, por ahí, creo que está. Un día ella se levantó y me dio una palabra, me, me habló y me dijo mi vida entera. Y yo me enojé con Rubén. Y yo le dije, ¿por qué anda contando mi vida? So just real quick. Um, <laughs> so while, while he was, uh, um, you know, going through this time in his life, he, uh, he was invited by Brooks to come to Agape. And Brooks had mentioned a Ruben that was from El Salvador. Uh, and so um, when he met Ruben Gill, uh, Ruben Gill isn't from El Salvador. Ruben is uh, he's from Mexico, Mexican. There's and too so, many Rubens. There's a lot, yeah, a lot of Rubens. And so um, <laughs> at that time when he was going through this, uh, um, you know, horrible time in his life, uh, he was uh, obviously upset and sad and uh, didn't understand what was happening. He said he spent a lot of his time here at Agape. I don't know if you guys remember him, but he used to sit back there in the very back row. Margaret, uh, Mark, at, a, at that time, Margaret shared a word with him and basically told him everything that was going on in his life here and everything that was going on in his life back at home in El Salvador. And so he thought that Ruben had shared all this information with Margaret. But if you guys know Margaret, you know she's on a different level. So um, <laughs> that, that, that was not the case. And so he went back to Ruben and said, hey, what's going on? Why are you sharing my life story with Margaret, she just, it, she just told me everything that I've, I've only talked to you about. Así empezó de aquí, um, luego me, el Pastor Mike, me acuerdo que me dio el número de Frank, mi, mi jefe. <laughs> so while he was here, he was, he, he'd worked at restaurants uh, a, a lot of the time prior to, um, to coming to Agape, and at that time, uh, Pastor Mike shared a number with, uh, or shared, uh, Frank, Frank uh, Sanchez, um, who is our former boss, and so at that time, that's how he, you know, um, eventually started working for Frank and his company here locally. Es complicado porque nunca contesta el teléfono. Y yo le llamaba, le llamaba, le llamaba. Fui como tres veces a hablar con él. Y después un día me, me dio trabajo y, y, y ahí fue como yo pude juntar un poco de dinero para regresar. So um, after many attempts of getting, uh, trying to get a hold of Frank, Frank's a busy man. Uh, and so he eventually got a hold of Frank and uh, started working for Frank and uh, was able to uh, work enough to start to save money so that eventually he could uh, get back home to El Salvador um, with his family. I'll share a little bit about the story because I, I know him really well. While he was here, he was... Um, he had hopes to start a church with a, with a friend. Uh, that obviously didn't happen. And uh, while he was here, so while he was here, he um, had a phone call with his son who was two years old at the time. Um, and he had already been here probably a year, maybe longer, and had a conversation with his son. And he found out that his wife was in a relationship with someone else while he was down here through his two-year-old son. And so you can imagine. Uh, you can imagine, you know, he's here under the impressions of uh, starting a church, eventually bringing his family, which he was promised uh, that one day his wife and his son would be able to join him here in the United States, uh, and that didn't happen. And so what now? You know, he's, uh, 
he's working. We worked uh, for Frank for a long time together, and at that time, uh, we shared lots of moments, and I didn't know how he was going to do it, and, you know, and he certainly didn't know how he was going to do it, but... Uh, um, Tell him about the lunch. <laughs> I'll show you another story with this. So we worked a lot together uh, when we were working with Frank, and uh, there were times where he'd come to work, and during our lunch hour or lunch break, you know, I'd ask him if he had anything for lunch, and he didn't have anything for lunch, and so... Either I had money to buy lunch or I would bring my lunch. And so um, I couldn't leave him hungry. So obviously I'd share my lunch with him or I'd buy lunch for both of us. But uh, what I shared with him in actual food, uh, he shared with me, you know, the gospel of Christ. So at the same time, while I was feeding him, he was uh, definitely feeding me uh, God's word. And um, it was... Uh, a relationship that uh, that was unique, definitely unique and special. Um, at that time, had no idea how he was going to get back to El Salvador, if his plans were even to go back to El Salvador, because he shared many times where he even he didn't know what he was going to do, if he was going to stay or if he was going to go back. He was here on a visa. His visa was uh, going to expire soon, and so um, through... Um, advice from Jeff and Pastor Mike and even myself, and I'm sure Frank, uh, we encouraged him to go back home. He was encouraged to go back home to take care of family business, first and foremost. So he went back home. Yeah. And to start a church. And to start a church. Al principio, cuando llegué a mi país, no hallaba que hacer. Lo primero que hice fue tratar de como me Él me dijo, ve allá y recupérala. Y por hacerle caso, fui y la recuperé y me tiró la puerta mil veces y no, no quiso nada. So, so uh, Jeff advised him to go home. Oh, no. And go back. Blame and, it all on and, me. And take back, you know, what, in a sense, what the devil has taken away, his family. Go, get, go back and get your wife. And so my man here listened. He went back. In attempts to get his family back, to get his wife back, and many times she slammed the door in his face. So that didn't work out. It didn't work out. But, but, but. There's a there's a good but. Allí um, volví a juntarme con mis amigos y me dijeron, hey, enseñanos la Biblia, compartí la palabra. Como canto, entonces, bueno, yo canto, predico, bailo, todo lo que quieras. Entonces, entonces um, eh, me, nos sentamos un día, agarramos una bocina y yo ponía ahí pistas como karaoke y predicaba, cantaba y, y empezó a crecer, a crecer el grupo. So he went back home not really knowing what to do. So I guess uh, initially he went back, he eventually got back home and... Uh, started getting in contact with old friends. And so um, the way it started, the way his ministry started was they'd gather, there'd be about 12 or 13 people. He'd have like a karaoke machine type uh, speaker. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard this guy sing, but he's got a very beautiful voice. Uh, and so he'd sing uh, and he'd share the gospel with these 13 people. And eventually just joking, he principio, 
So it was, it was all just in joking, hey, we should start our own church. And it was 13 So even while he was in El, in El Salvador, um, his intentions were to get back to the United States. Um, six years later, he finally gets to come back. He's visiting us now here. So it started originally with 13 people, and more and more people started hearing about um, his small group or small gathering, uh, and it just started growing and growing and growing. So from 13 a 13, ¿cuántos son ahorita? 150. So from 13, he's grown to about 150 now. Uh, Praise God. Just by starting, you know, uh, with a few friends, uh, just singing and sharing the gospel. No teníamos ni una silla, no teníamos nada, nada, no, no, no había nada para para empezar y y Dios ha ido supliendo hasta lo que tenemos ahora. No sé si están las fotos. So they started off uh, not even chairs. No one had chairs to sit on. Uh, and through the years, as they've been growing, uh, as his ministry's been growing, God's God's blessed them, and uh, now um, he he shares a lot. I don't know if he um, if you guys are familiar with his, with his ministry or, or uh, are friends with him on Facebook, but uh, they have a, um, they have a really nice place to gather now. Um, they've uh, they've they've built a structure where they met before, have outgrown that, and now they're actually meeting outside. It's afuera ahorita. It's outside, kind of, it kind of looks like this, just no walls around it. I think there is a roof. They do have, they do have a rooftop now, but they, they meet out, outdoors now because they've outgrown uh, the original building that they were uh, meeting in. Tell us about the uh, MS-13 problem and how the gospel is going to reach the gang, gangs. ¿Cómo han impactado... El Salvador está complicado. En los años 80, 90 se dio la guerra civil. 12 años de guerra civil murieron más de 80 mil personas. So in the 80s and 90s, uh, um, in El Salvador, they had a, a civil war. And so in, in, the, in, in, those, uh, in those years, about 80 or 90,000 El Salvadorians lost their life. De esa cultura quedó una cultura de violencia y de sangre. And out of that culture, uh, a, a culture of, of, of um, crime, death, uh, came from, came from that, that time in El Salvador. So it's... It's, it's the, uh, the residue or uh, the result of a, rev a revolution that occurred in the 80s and 90s. Por esa razón, mucha gente se vino huyendo para acá y las familias quedaron solas y los niños quedaron solos. Y empezó a crearse los grupos. Primero eran los colegios, las escuelas, y ahora los criminales, las pandillas que son ahora. So it started off small, started off local, um, and then because of the violence, a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of those uh, you know gang members, family members have left. Everyone's left, and so that that is what exists now. That's a culture that exists now, and so in El Salvador, the gangs and the violence is what, uh, in a sense, controls El Salvador now. Los niños eh, de los pandilleros 
nacen pensando como pandilleros. Entonces ellos se han multiplicado y han tomado el control de los lugares. So it's so uh, what he's saying is that it's now it's now multi generation. So you know the original generation, the original uh, uh, group uh, of, of of gangs or whatever that started have now you know it's now a, it's now a generational thing. So you have you know where I grew up and you have the veteranos which are the older ones and now you have the younger generations following in the steps of, of the older generation. So it's a perpetuating, um, perpetuating problem since then. Y la iglesia está en medio de so una de las ciudades más peligrosas. So his church um, is centered right in the middle of El Salvador where it is the, the most crime exists and he's, he's centered right in the middle of that, of that area. Hay, hay una, yo, yo no me acuerdo el nombre, pero es una institución de gobierno de acá que fue enviado a hacer un análisis de la crisis. No lo, no lo puede resolver ni el gobierno, ni la policía, ni nadie. Y ese hombre, no me recuerdo el nombre, ni la institución, pero es del gobierno de acá, llegó a la conclusión que los únicos que estaban trayendo a la, una vida diferente era la iglesia. So he's, he uh, shared this with me earlier. Uh, I guess um, an agency from the United States, uh, a government agency from the U.S., went to El Salvador to, to, to find out what, what can be done to, to change the culture, to end crime, to end uh, um, you know, corruption. And their only conclusion that they came up with was the only way that this area in El Salvador, or El Salvador in general, the only way that this place was going to change was going to change through the church. It's the only way. That's the only conclusion they came up with. There was no, you know, no, didn't, finances, nothing, money, none of that was going to help it. The only way that they concluded was El Salvador was only going to be saved through church, through Christ, through God's word. Esa gente es mala. Te pueden matar por cualquier cosa. Si los quedas viendo, si los ves mal, te matan, no importa. So if you're, if you're familiar with uh, MS, so there's lots of gang, lots of gangs in, in El Salvador uh, on top of what you hear on the news. But, you know, he's saying that you can't even look at them. You can't stare in their direction because they, um, they won't hesitate to take your life. It's just, just the way it is. You don't look their way. Uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't look their way uh, because if you do, uh, they'll, they'll kill you. Pero cuando te les acercas a ellos y les hablas del Señor y los abrazas, son unos gatitos encerrados. Tienen, lloran como niños. But he says that when you approach them and you speak to them about Christ and you love on them and give them a hug, they're uh, as tender as a, as a little kitty cat. You know, as a little kitten. Y ahí estamos trabajando nosotros. And so that's, that's, where, that's where their ministry is located, right in the middle of that. This is how, this is how the gospel, this is the gospel. It's how, um, this is how our cultures will be changed. It's not from a great government plan. It's the gospel from the inside. And so, um, I want to pray over William and I want us all to pray over him um, because we're partners in the gospel, you know, um, 
Frank has supported William for six years. We've supported William for six years, not in the sense that um, we've partnered with the gospel through you to reach the people in El Salvador in that, in that place. And also, it's not just people in El Salvador that win. It's people here that win. When the gospel is held up, everyone wins. Yeah. We're still believing. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Frank and, and Judy, can, do you want to, um, can you guys come up here? We want to lay hands on William and pray for him. It's the gospel. You can just reach your arms out. Heavenly Father, we... We bless William today. as one who has given his life for the gospel, laid it aside. And who you've called us in and blessed us to be a partner with in the gospel. Lord, we pray, God, for the work that's ahead of him, the vision that you've given him, the people's lives that hang in the balance, those whom you love, those who are shrouded in all kinds of darkness as they are here. Lord, we pray, God, for the power of the gospel to move through him, that his hands would be anointed to heal, that his words be, would be anointed with your unfailing love. God, that you'd grant him favor, favor with the gangs, favor with their families, favor with those who are in authority, those with real estate holdings and places and keys to the community, and favor with government officials, favor through the veil of corruption. God, we bless and honor William today in your name.